non-violence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of non-violence is redemption. The aftermath of non-violence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of justice and Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as their brothers and sisters. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and for the Pacifica Radio Network, this is the beloved community. Resources for activism, Each month, I speak with amazing people who find a way to live out the principles of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the principles of nonviolence. The beloved community is about activism and what it takes to give activism its soul and staying power. My guest is Larry Brilliant. Larry's a medical doctor and a 1960s radical. He tells the story of the final eradication of smallpox and how his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, inspired him to be a key player and ending the world's most horrific disease. We have done things as a planet and as humanity that should gladden our hearts, but it's politically expedient to to tell us that we are incompetent, wretched, we can't do anything. What makes me optimistic is the symbol of the last case of killer smallpox. It is a proof point that I offer in opposition to the hate and the vitriol and the separatistness that is today part of our presidential election, but more is a deeper part of our malice. I offer as proof of what we can do as a species that we have conquered the worst disease in history. And we did it with love and we did it all together. His book is called Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician who helped conquer the worst disease in history. From San Francisco via Skype, welcome, Larry, to the beloved community. Thank you, John. Nice to be with you. Very nice to be with you. The bulk of your book uh, is about uh, the eradication of smallpox in India in the early to mid-70s, and I want to spend some time with you about uh, the spiritual quest in all of this and how it relates to activism and and the amazing people that you've met in your adventures. Uh, But first, just let's talk about uh, smallpox specifically. Uh, What was the scope of the problem uh, when you became aware of it, and and what was your role in eradication? Oh, I think... uh it's always uh, difficult to say what's the worst virus in the world or what's the worst disease. You, you kind of get into a contest, people who you know, think Ebola is the worst or smallpox, or, if we're talking about viruses. But I think without question, smallpox killed the most people in human history of any infectious disease. Um, in the 20th century alone, which was only 17 years ago, uh, smallpox killed half a billion people 500 million. It's more than all the wars in the 20th century, First, Second World War. It's more than the Holocaust and the Spanish influenza in 1917-1918. So it's a bad disease. Uh, it's been around for, well, we know Pharaoh Ramses V had it because we took the scabs off the face of the mummy. <laughs> uh, but probably it's been around for 10,000 years. Uh, we know that smallpox killed two dozen kings and queens and emperors. Uh, I, I actually, it's my favorite slide in public health is showing the 
names and pictures of all the kings and queens and emperors who died of smallpox. That's not because I particularly want to kill off kings and queens and emperors. <laughs> it's because no amount of wealth or power can protect you from a disease for which there's a 35% death rate, there's no vaccine, and there's no antiviral. And I think that's the spiritual metaphor that smallpox is. My friends in Silicon Valley, the new Medicis, uh, all the money in the world won't protect you if there's another virus like smallpox. And the mortality of these 25 of the most powerful people in the world is a reminder that Buddha was right and that we each faith a finite life. And more than that, I think, because smallpox has killed people of every race, every religion, every language, all throughout history, it's a reminder of how much we have in common with each other, how we really truly are all in this together. It's not just the 99.4% the same genetic material. It's that we all have the same susceptibilities. We all have a finite life. We will all experience death and suffering in our lifetime. And so the end of smallpox, this lifting one form of suffering, one burden off the shoulders of mankind as God's gift to us, that's to me the deepest spiritual lesson of all, that People from 170 countries, Russians and Americans in the middle of the Cold War, when we had 40,000 nuclear weapons pointed at each other, still we could metaphorically bury those 40,000 hatchets and come together and work together as a family of man to conquer this, the worst disease in history. That's, that to me is the most uplifting message. And you had met uh, the last person to contract smallpox. Well, the last little girl to have killer smallpox, because there's lots of different kinds of smallpox, the one that we worry the most about, variola major, that little girl's name was Rahima Banu. She lived in a village called Karalia on Bola Island in the Bay of Bengal, inside of the country of Bangladesh. And in October 1975, she contracted a rash, a fever, and she survived. She was three or four at that time. As her disease was waning, the scabs on her body fell off and she coughed. And when she did and the scabs landed on the ground and she coughed that final cough that the viruses came out and they landed on the earth and the sun baked and sterilized them. That was the end of transmission of a chain that goes back to Pharaoh Ramses V and, and probably 10,000 years ago when smallpox was probably a disease of monkeys, jumped to humans, probably, we don't know. That chain of transmission was broken. She was the last of that chain. And when you think about that and you think about when we study the history of the United States, hardly a couple hundred years. We study the history of language, tens of thousands of years. We, you know, you go all the way back in history. The number of people who smallpox claimed, and she represents the last. And in my book, I have a picture of her with a balloon that says uh, in Hindi and English, smallpox can be stopped. 
And I carried that balloon around India for three years, <laughs> never knowing I would see the last case of smallpox. But I photographed a lot of children with that balloon. And I have a photo of the last case of smallpox with that balloon. And that is the most inspiring photo that I've ever had. And, and it's something I think about a lot. Larry Brilliant, uh, my guest, he's the author of Sometimes Brilliant. Um, this whole event of eradicating uh, smallpox uh, really had a spiritual aspect for you. Um, and I'm, I'm making sure I say his name correctly, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, the beloved. Oh, you got it perfectly right. Yeah, beloved and respected spiritual teacher, a teacher of Ram Das, who wrote the classic uh, Be Here Now. Uh, uh, he's the one who uh, gave you the assignment, so to speak. Can you, can you talk about um, your experience with him? I know you were suspicious of him at first, but uh, ended up you saw him as the real thing. Well, I, I grew up in a Jewish community, you know, very comfortable in, in, in Christian churches uh, as well. So uh, I'm pretty simply Judeo-Christian in my my orientation and in my background. Uh, in my traditions, we don't like uh, idol worshiping. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 we have the first commandment, first and second commandments to, to look towards. Uh, and I don't like uh, touching people's feet, which it never made me feel like that's just another form of idolatry. And when I first got uh, to the ashram, my wife had gone before me, and we had gone to India as hippies on a caravan that began in San Francisco and changed buses in London, and we drove and lived in India, but before that we lived in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, um, in Nepal, and we wound up in this ashram. Uh, if you think of where India is, you just envision the map, and Here's Nepal, and there's China and Tibet and India. In that corner right there in the Himalayas, that's where I lived for three years with my wife and with Neem Karoli Baba. That's the same uh, ashram that Steve Jobs came to and Krishnadas and Dan Goldman, a lot of other young Americans and young Westerners came there in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, so we were living there, and one day uh, Neem Karoli Baba, we called him Maharaji, uh, he called me and said, Dr. America, that was the name he gave me. I was really disappointed. I wanted a name like Ramdas or Ravidas or Krishnadas. I wanted to be one of the Das brothers. Uh, <laughs> but he called me Dr. America. Um, he called me that and he said, um, you know, uh, meditation is good. Prayer is good. But I have something in addition that I want you to do. I want you to go down uh, to New Delhi. By the way, that was 15, 16 hour travel on a train, a bus, a rickshaw. I want you to go down to New Delhi and I want you to go to the office of the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and you are going to become a United Nations doctor. You're gonna work, go to villages and give vaccinations because God is going to remove one form of suffering from humanity and lift the burden of this disease, smallpox, and it will be unmullen, eradicated. Go. <laughs> Get out of here. Go. What are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah. And my wife and I went down, you know, took this trip 15, 16, 17 hours, and I did find the, the office of the World Health Organization, and I walked in, and um, 
And they kicked me out in about 10 seconds. I mean, of course, I was wearing an ashram gown. I had a beard down to my my knees and the hair down my back. And uh, I went back up 17 hours back to my guru. And he said, did you get your job? And I said, no, I'm not going to get a job. I'm not qualified. And he sent me back again uh, at least a dozen times over the next six months, that same trip. And it was more futile each trip than the previous one. And uh, everyone laughed at me. What, you're just a hippie kid. What are you? And I had, I mean, I had gone to medical school, but I had never seen a case of smallpox. I had no public health experience. And one day, we're now into the 12th or 13th time I've gone, and I'm a little frustrated with this. He says to me, Dr. America, go right now, this very second. It's critically important you go right now. <laughs> so I went, and as luck would have it, I walked in the door, and there was another American walking in at exactly the same time. I had never seen an American at WHO. And uh, he said to me, hi, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm very brilliant. I'm a doctor. I live in the Himalayas. My guru who lives in the Himalayas said that smallpox is going to be eradicated. This is God's gift to humanity. And I'm supposed to be part of it. Who are you? <laughs> and he said, I'm D.A. Henderson. I'm the head of the smallpox program globally. And I live in Geneva and there's no program in India. <laughs> I'm just here to meet with the prime minister, Mrs. Gandhi, to try to talk her into having a smallpox program in India. But he agreed to interview me. This was a real thing for me. I hadn't, nobody had interviewed me. <laughs> And uh, 10 years later, when I had been working for the smallpox program for almost a decade, when we had eradicated smallpox, when 150,000 people had visited every house in India 20 times, making over 2 billion house calls, when Russians and Americans with 40,000 nuclear weapons had worked together and people from 170 countries had come, and we had eradicated smallpox. He asked me to go back. I was a professor at the University of Michigan. Then. He asked me to go back and close the doors, turn off the lights, pack up all the records for, for history. And I peeked at what he had written about me that first day that he met me when I had hair down to the middle of my back. And his, his interview was, I have today met a young man named Larry Brilliant. He says he's a doctor. He sure doesn't look like one. <laughs> he, he says that his guru in the Himalayas told him that smallpox would be eradicated, but we don't have a program in India yet. He appears to have gone native. We don't have a place for him. <laughs> and uh, I gave that back to D.A. Henderson uh, when I was writing my textbook on smallpox years ago, and he laughed so hard, uh, a good Calvinist working hard to make the world better. Um, he died uh, about six weeks ago, and next week I'm going to his oh, I'm sorry. His funeral in Washington, D.C., and it will be a celebration of the life of a great man. You met uh, so many uh, fascinating people on your journey, including Neem Karoli Baba. His name, for you and for others, uh, really opened doors and kept that possibility open that smallpox really would be eradicated and this would be a success. Uh, do you think you would have had that same type of uh, encouragement had you not had that assignment from the Majarashi? 
No. No, I think I would have quit and given up. I mean, it was too hard. Um, everybody got sick all the time. My team, uh, doctors from uh, Switzerland and Russia and Czechoslovakia and India and America, sometimes our team meetings look like a hospital ward. Um, every time we thought we had eradicated smallpox, we found one more hidden case. Uh, it was the, the, you know, once I had to go uh, interview a, a decoit, a thief, a, a gangster in a, in a jail. He was almost seven foot tall and, and he, he wanted to kill me. <laughs> he didn't want to get smallpox, get vaccinated. Um, the number of times that we all got sick or frightened or no, this was a roller coaster. It was not smooth. It was not easy. Um, remember, we didn't have any cell phones. We didn't have any phones. We didn't have any computers, no internet. Um, and for me, what, what held it together was his confidence and faith. And then when he died, which he did about three years before smallpox had finally been eradicated, he had given me things to read in the Bhagavad Gita. He had spoken about his love for Jesus. He had uh, introduced us to Buddhist teachings and even Islamic teachings um, so that we were comfortable with all the different communities that I lived with in India, which was pretty much every religion you could think of. Uh, and I would always go to the religious leaders because that's where the resistance to vaccination came from. And it was only from there that the help could come. And, and it wasn't a surprise that there was resistance in the Hindu community because to make the vaccine, vaccine, by the way, is a Latin word, which means cow, vacas. So in order to get the vaccine, you had to kill cows. India is a country that worships, venerates cows. So you could understand the turmoil and the resistance. Um, but I had a little photograph of Neem Karoli Baba that I put on my UN Jeep, strictly against the rules, <laughs> right on the windshield. Uh, and when I would pull in to talk to a civil surgeon or a district medical officer who was maybe not all that helpful in the beginning of the conversation, and but he was very, always inevitably very polite and would walk me out to my Jeep. And mostly it was a he, a couple of women, but they would look and they would see that picture of Neem Karoli Baba and they would say, who is he? And who is he to you? And I would say, well, he's my guru. And he said smallpox would be eradicated. And they would say, wait, wait, Neem Karoli Baba says smallpox would be eradicated? That's his prophecy? I would say, yes. Say, Come back inside and have a cup of tea. Let's talk about this. <laughs> hmm. And that changed everything. So it wasn't just the mystical way that his prediction motivated me, that was certainly true, but it was the practical reality that in India, his name was associated with prophetic ideas. And when a skeptical doctor saw his photo and heard what he had said to me and told me to go work in the smallpox building, and kind of the story of how I had gotten finally accepted at WHO after six months of, of these it really, these were the, these were spiritual tests 
as any teacher tests any student to see if, you know, how I would change during that process of humiliation and rejection. <laughs> a good a good way to learn, a hard way to learn. Neem Karoli Baba talked about for you that this was a uh, karma yoga. There's meditation, and as you mentioned before, and there's prayer, but there's also a duty, and it had to do with not attaching yourself to the aspect of it, that uh, that, that was part of the spiritual quest task, to be able to do this thing but not be attached to its success. That's right. Uh, and, and there's two ways. Uh, it, it's called, it, it is called yoga. Yoga really means like to yoke oxen to a, a bullock cart. That's the origin of the word yoga. And it means to yoke or to tie your soul, the Atman, the small soul, to God, the big soul, to be reunited with God. It's a mystical term. And there's thousands of different kinds of yogas. We have one predominant in the United States, which is a physical yoga, hatha yoga, um, which has always been intended to be a preliminary to help you get physically ready to meditate, which is called dhyana yoga, or to study, which is called jnana yoga, <laughs> or to act in service in the world, which is called karma yoga. And so what he taught me was karma yoga, but to do it without attachment, either to your own self, which is doing it, not to not to think of this as you doing it, but to think of it as service. And harder even, because you're dealing with little children dying, don't get attached to the results. That's easy to say. It's not so easy to say, I won't get attached to whether children die or not. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you have faith in God, you know that God is going to stop children from dying. Uh, and so it's an exercise in faith as well as an exercise in yoga. And that is, and, and it's really hard. I think all of these are hard. Every sadhana, every path to God is hard. Every one of these um, yogas uh, or dharmas or karmas, they're all hard. Um, but that one was particularly hard for me. And that's probably why that was the one that I was given. You know, throughout the book, uh, one of the themes that uh, repeats uh, is this dance between doing and being, or, or as you quote uh, uh, your friend, wavy gravy, dooby dooby doo. Uh, how right. is right. uh, talk about a little bit about that dance um, and how that's played out within you? Well, I, I, after we eradicated smallpox, I know that's a big term. After we eradicated, after we eradicated smallpox, uh, a lot of the people who worked on the smallpox program, plus my friends from the commune we had lived in, uh, the hog farm, Wavy Gravy and his wife, Janara, and Ram Das, and a lot of the Das brothers. Uh, we all got together uh, with other people from the United Nations and CDC, and we formed the Seva Foundation. And it was a very eclectic group. It still is ex around. Seva's programs have given back sight to more than 4 million blind people all over the world now. I'm very proud of that. Uh, and, um, and we got started as a deliberately eclectic, part spiritual, part secular, all religions group, because I wanted, we all wanted to do it again. I mean, after we had eradicated smallpox, it was like climbing a big tall mountain. You, of course you want to do it again. Um, and, 
And this time we decided we would take on blindness. And uh, my, my, my boss in WHO, I had a lot of bosses, but the one that I loved the most, uh, Nicole Grasset, uh, she was the, we used to call her a hurricane on Gucci heels because <laughs> she was always impeccably dressed. <laughs> and she just could do more things than anybody else I've ever met um, as a leader. And she, uh, she would always say, Ramdas would always say, slow down, slow down. We must act in a way that's conscious. Breathe in, breathe out. And then she would say, what are you talking about? What difference does it matter if I burn in hell? Who cares about me if one more child who is blind can see again? <laughs> so she represented the do squad. Ramdas represented the B squad. <laughs> and they would fight. Huge fights. We used to call it the Clash of the Titans, and they would reenact an ancient conflict between doing and being, contemplative nuns versus nuns who work in the community. We, we have, all, of, all religions have this, the mystics versus the, you know, the, the practical, pragmatic, pragmatists. And uh, when they would start going at each other, then we would all start chanting doobie 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 <laughs> <laughs> you learned from both sides though that they really needed to dance kind of a yin and a yang we needed you needed both well you need a sense of humor well that's true if you if you as, as wavy says if you don't have a sense of humor it's just not funny anymore <laughs> <laughs> this is the beloved community i'm john shuck my guest is larry brilliant author of sometimes brilliant we're discussing the eradication of smallpox and the link between spirituality and activism. Now, when I see the phrase spiritual seeker, I think, okay, what's that mean? Spirituality is a word that uh, is, uh, often seems trivialized to me, kind of as a, as a first world amusement. Uh, what have you found spiritual to mean to you? Well, it, I actually think of it as a way to use a word that isn't the word religion. Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm a multi-religious person, I guess, a multiculturalist. I mean, because of my experiences living with Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Zoroastrians, um, I and, and uh, Jains. I mean, where where do I stop? Uh, animists, polytheists. <laughs> it's the spiritual part that that has attracted me so much and the quality of a search for an explanation to what is this precious life that we have been given and what should we do with it? Um, you know, I, I went into college in a, in a scholarship to study atomic physics and I didn't much like that. I, I moved into philosophy and ethics and in ethics, there is a perennial quest. The Hindus call it Sanatan Dharam, the eternal quest. And it's, it's a quest for guiding principle. And the Latin for that is summum bonum, the highest principle. Jesus called it the greatest commandment. What is the highest principle? What is the greatest commandment? The highest commandment. What is and the summum bonum? And 
for me, it's this essence of all religions are a search for answers to this question of being a finite being. We are beings that die. Does that mean this is all just a sham? What does it mean, this quest for understanding who we are and, and the summa bonum? And that's the spiritual part. I think it's over now. Yeah, I don't hear anything now. Yeah. So, so the, the, the summa bonum, the highest good, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting. You know, you and I talked earlier about the book of Mark. Or my, I'm interested in the book of Mark. Um, the synoptic gospels, these three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are the same general um, recitation of witnesses to the life of Jesus. They, they have many of the same stories and parables and teachings in them. John's in a slightly different category. And in all of them, there's one episode that's common but it's treated differently in the three Gospels and, and, and very differently. And it is the, the story of the rabbi who comes to Jesus in order to test him, to see if he is the Messiah, if he is an enlightened being, if he is a wise person, if he's God. And in Matthew and in Luke, the rabbi asks him, the rabbi calls him, calls Jesus rabbi, teacher. says, Rabbi, what is the highest commandment? And we know the answer. It's, it's the central tenet of Christianity. Jesus answers, the highest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and treat your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is... The answer that Jesus gives to the rabbi, what the highest commandment is. But that's not how he answers in Mark. Mark was written, of course, in Greek. And he answers, or Aramaic, I mean, there's even controversy there, but he answers that question in Hebrew. He says, the highest commandment is this, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Uh, Hebrew doesn't appear in the New Testament except in that one line in the answer that Jesus gives to Mark. What is the highest commandment? And that, that phrase in Hebrew is translated often as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I don't know what those words mean. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I don't know what those words mean, but... But they're the words that every Jewish kid grows up saying over and over again. It's the watchword of Judaism. Jesus mm -hmm. is answering the highest commandment is the watchword of Judaism because he was Jewish. And I have spent time with rabbis in Israel, mystical rabbis all over. And I always ask that question. I try to understand what does that really mean? And the best answer that I have come to understand, very controversial, <laughs> The word Shema, it doesn't mean hear with the ears. In the 60s, we had a term grok. I mean, the 
Shema means to hear with your entire being, with all of your experience, with your eyes, with your ears, with your everything. Meditate on it. Deeply understand what I'm about to say. Shema. Israel. The word Israel is the name given Yisroel to Isaac. To, to Jacob, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Jacob wrestled all night with the angel. Do you remember that story? Mm-hmm. On the Jabbok Jacob River. Wrestles. He wakes up in the morning, and all night he has been wrestling with God. Mm-hmm. And so God gives him a new name. Instead of Jacob, he gives him the name Yisrael, which means you who have wrestled with God, you who fight God. You who fight God. So now it's getting interesting. Shema Yisrael means, hey, listen very carefully, all of you who fight with God. This is Jesus saying, what's the highest commandment? Listen, all of you carefully. Well, that's the. <laughs> is that your dog? Right, let me go take care of it. I'll all be right. right back. I don't know. That's another mystical truth that when we're talking about the highest and greatest teachings in God's liturgy, we get interrupted by the barking of a dog. Let's remember where we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's it's like uh, uh, the, the guru just uh, throwing an apple at you. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. It's just exactly what it is. Don't get too carried away with what you think is real. <laughs> yeah. so, so Shema Yisrael, <clears throat> yeah. listen, all of you who are struggling with God, Adonai Eloheinu, God, the Lord our God, is Echad. Eternal. It means one, but it also means unity and eternal. And the rabbis say what Jesus was saying was that the highest commandment is that all of you who are struggling with God and with trying to find meaning in life, you must understand that you are mortal and finite. God is infinite and everlasting. If you, Shema, if you meditate on that, it will give you peace because you won't demand of yourself an understanding of the life that you have been cast into. Everyone who has struggled with God, not just the Israelis. We all struggle. You and I have struggled when we've had tragedy in our lives. Yeah, I was going to... uh, I lost my son. mm -hmm. I hated God. I took all the pictures of my guru out of the house, all the images of Buddha. I didn't go to a church or a synagogue or a temple for years. It took me a long time to repopulate my house with sacred images because I struggled with why is there death? It's what is the essence of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, old age, suffering, and the finitude of life, and then an answer 
to the question of suffering. That's what Buddha spent all of his teaching about, was just that one thing, because it's the most important thing for us as conscious beings. Where does our consciousness go? What happens after death? What is this life all about? What Jesus was saying was that the ancient truth that created monotheism, that created Judaism, of which he was a part and a prophet for the next thousands of years, he was saying, this is the highest truth and it will bring you peace if you understand its secrets. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Listen, all of you who struggle with God, who struggle with suffering, who struggle with death, who struggle with the loss of your son, all of you who struggle, life is finite for human beings. It's infinite for God. Look to God. Understand God. Love God. You're listening to The Beloved Community. I'm John Schock, and I'm speaking with Larry Brilliant, author of Sometimes Brilliant, The Story of the Eradication of Smallpox. And we're just talking uh, quite personally here. Uh, before the interview started proper, Larry and I uh, shared with each other that we both lost sons uh, fairly recently, and, and, and they were both about the same age. And that idea of what gave you comfort through that as, as well as sustained and uh, your uh, ability to participate in this world with something good to offer is the idea that uh, struggling with God is not a a bad thing or, or uh, something or a loss of faith, but it really is an aspect of, of, of being human. It's perhaps, in a sense, the a strong aspect of faith, isn't it? You know, I um, so when I was living in the ashram with Neem Karoli Baba, every time something good would happen, he would say, Sub Ishwar, hey, it's all God. And we all began to repeat that as his students. Whenever you know we won something or somebody praised us, we would say, it's all God, it's all God. And then when something bad happened, like someone was sick or their parent died in the US, they got a cable that their parent had died, they would say um, that if it was bad that they had done it, they'd say, oh, I did something bad. And Maharaj would say, no, Subishwari, it's all God, it's all God. And it was a puzzle to us because what he was saying was, if you're going to give credit to God for all the good things, you have to give the negative credit to God for all the bad things. It's, it's not a question of praising and blaming. It's a question of understanding that it's like, you know, I, I watch American NFL sometimes less and less after the concussions. But you see that the winning team always points their chest and points their finger and said, God, God wanted us to win. It's because of God that I won. And I'm thinking, what about the poor slobs on the other team? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are they going, oh, God hates me. God loves me because I won. <laughs> I don't think that God has some elaborate computer system where he's playing with the odds of NFL Sunday games. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the way it works. But if you're going to praise God for the good things, you have to know from whence everything comes, including the bad things. That's what Maharaji was saying, that God is the source of the things which are not finite. 
and they have all these in the Vedas and the Zenda Vesta, these very ancient books in India, the I Ching, all of these books that are 5,000 years old that people have been reading for that long and worshiping with, and um, they all try to deal with this issue, this one issue. So for me, I take my comfort in understanding that the greatest spiritual leaders in the world didn't have a solution for this. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a very funny story that uh, uh, I, one of my most depressed moments was when I was in Calcutta working with uh, pavement dwellers, street people who had smallpox. I mean, you can imagine being poor and homeless and having smallpox and living on the streets with no medical care, no food, and also spreading the disease to your children, watching them die. It, it, it's a scene out of Dante's Inferno. And I was mad at God then, too. Why? What could these children have done that they should die such a horrible death? And, uh, no, no belief in reincarnation could justify this, this death. And I was reading um, the Credo and uh, Socrates' Last Days by I.F. Stone in order to get my head out of the pain that I was suffering every day watching these children die of smallpox. And, you know... Socrates, as he was dying, is reported by Plato to have said, as he took the hemlock quicker than anybody wanted him to, you know, he was sentenced to death for being a revolutionary, and they brought in, his jailer brought in the hemlock and put it down and said, you don't have to take it right now, you have, you have some time. And he rushed over and took it and just quaffed it down, and, and obviously crying and saying, but we had, we had some 30 more minutes. And he said, oh, I'm anxious to do this because there's only two possibilities after my life ends. Possibility number one, I'm finally going to get answers to all these questions I've been asking you. <laughs> I'm going to understand the meaning of life. Possibility number two, I'm going to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> and he laughed about it. But, but it was, I found it very um, comforting that the greatest and wisest man of the wisest city at the wisest time at the end of his life he didn't know the answer to the questions that plague me therefore I shouldn't demand of myself that I understand them my guest is Larry Brilliant. He's the author of Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disaster in, in History. It's an incredible book, an incredible adventure. Your last uh, chapter is, is about a uh, case for optimism. So what do you think? What do you think now? This, this planet that we're on and all of the struggles that we're facing, uh, huge things, climate change and, and all of that. How, how do we keep our, uh, what, what do we need to keep? And what do we need to do? Well, I think that we need to always look reality square in the face. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't solve a problem unless you have all of the information. If you listen to the presidential debates, you will feel that we are an incompetent species. 
that we can never get anything done. We're hopeless. And we can certainly never get along with somebody who looks different than us. If we're white and they're black, if we're Christian and they're Muslim, if they're immigrants and we're American, we can't get along with them. We can't get along with the UN community. It's all a farce. It's a, if you allow yourself to see the world as it is, the truth is that 700 million people have been pulled out of poverty in the last 30 years. Three quarters of a billion people no longer live earning less than 80 or 90 cents a day. 30 years ago, I was in places in Bangladesh and Ethiopia and Nepal where 50% of the children died before the age of five. There's no place in the world today where half of kids die before the age of five because they're vaccinated. Bill Gates single-handedly changed that ratio from 80% unvaccinated to 80% vaccinated. So the children live into the fullness of adulthood. That causes parents to have fewer children. It's the greatest population reducer in the world is to educate girls, vaccinate kids. We're not going to go to 15 billion people. The trajectory has been changed. Not just the arc of the moral universe has been dragged down towards justice, but the population growth curve has been dragged down to something that'll be manageable. We have fewer wars than we've ever had in recorded history. We have fewer soldiers in uniform shooting each other. It doesn't sound like that if you watch Fox or CNN every night. It's not to say that three million refugees from Syria is not the most heartbreaking thing. It's to say that as a planet, we are wealthier, more peaceful, more prosperous, and that wealth is more evenly divided. Now, it is true that we have lots of systemic problems to solve. When one quarter of 1% of Americans own 50 or 60% of all the goodies, that's not sustainable. Forget about being wrong. It's just not sustainable. We know from history, mm -hmm. when you have asymmetry like that, you have revolution. So we have work we have to do. Bernie's right. The thing that Trump talks about in his populism, there's, there's elements of truth in all of that. If, if, if you ask yourself, what is the cost of these 700 million people coming out of poverty in India and China and Vietnam and Africa? The cost has been the hollowing out of our industrial Midwest. I come from Detroit. I know those assembly line jobs, the steel mill jobs in Pittsburgh, the rubber factories, Firestone and Akron, Ohio, they're not coming back. We need to solve all of these things. My experience working in the United Nations for 10 years, working with people of every race, every color of their skin, every language you could think of, 170 nations collaborating, working together to eradicate smallpox. My experience is that we can conquer the hardest things in the world if we work together. We're very close to eradicating polio. Pakistan's had only 15 cases all year. We're close to eradicating guinea worm, which no one knows about. Another biblical disease, trachunculiasis, the fiery serpent in the Bible. 
we have done things as a planet and as humanity that should gladden our hearts, but it's politically expedient to, to tell us that we are incompetent, wretched, we can't do anything. What makes me optimistic is the symbol of the last case of killer smallpox. It is a proof point that I offer in opposition to the hate and the vitriol and the separatist that is today part of our presidential election, but more is a deeper part of our malice. I offer as proof of what we can do as a species that we have conquered the worst disease in history. And we did it with love and we did it all together. Larry Brilliant has been my guest. He's the author of Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disaster in History. Larry, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for this book and, and for all the time uh, it took uh, to put that together. I know there was, there was many years putting, uh, like getting, getting the book written. So thank you for the book and thank you for being with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. You're, you're just a pleasure to talk to. And, uh, we share something now that is an unbreakable bond. Thank you. You've been listening to The Beloved Community, resources for activism. Find podcasts of this show and my weekly show, Progressive Spirit, on ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schott. Be well. Be well.